0: So, we've been talking about the second of the
1: Four Truths, the true cause of dukkha, or the true cause of unsatisfactory experiences. And We've been looking at this from a, a lot of different angles. The angle of the afflictions, the pollutants, the fetters, the auxiliary afflictions in the Sanskrit tradition in the Pali tradition. And we see so many uh, similar similarities between these lists with certain mental factors coming up again and again and again, especially the three poisonous attitudes of ignorance or confusion, attachment and animosity or anger. So these causes of dukkha are in our mind, they're mental factors that arise from different, under different circumstances, and due to them, we create the karma that keeps us revolving in cyclic existence. When we really think about what cyclic existence means, not just superficially, but Really spend some time contemplating it. It's quite a fearful situation. And we generate the wish to be free from it, to attain liberation. And to do that, we have to eliminate these various distorted mental factors. And thankfully, they are not part of our mind, an inherent part of our mind. They're based on wrong conceptions, so they can be eliminated. And with their elimination and the generation of perfect wisdom and other good qualities, then we're able to attain a state of actual peace. But it's important not to aim for this state of peace for, just for our own benefit. Because we live in a world where we, we're completely dependent on other living beings and to abandon them simply by seeking our own liberation wouldn't be right. It wouldn't be the proper way to repay the kindness that sentient beings have shown us. And so we aim for Buddhahood, where we will have all of the wisdom and compassion and skillful means to really benefit living beings in a very deep and profound way, not just by giving them presence, although that's great, but really by helping them also attain liberation and awakening. Since we have that potential to be like that, and nobody can take that potential away, then let's have a strong resolution to actualize that Buddha potential for the benefit of all living beings. And let's make that the purpose of our lives. So last week we had a couple of questions after the session. And Venerable uh, Sangha Kadra and I were able to get them straightened out. And part of it was indeed a translation problem. Okay. So... Um, and the translations, you know, it just depends on the translator. Because <laughs> we looked at the the Sanskrit terms, and they had several different translations, according to the text. Okay, so um, in Abhidharma, the what I was when I was talking about fetters last time, okay, the Sanskrit term is, is samyojana. Um, in Abhidharma Baisha, they're translated as connections. Don't ask me why. Okay, Um, they're divided into three groups. Okay, in uh, the the first group, okay, one uh, translator called them affection, aversion, pride, ignorance. View, unjustified estimation, doubt, envy, and avarice. Those same nine, nine, yeah, were translated in the text I have with this first, the same six uh, root afflictions. Okay. So ignorance, attachment, anger, uh, doubt. Yeah, Uh, arrogance, and then the, um, the afflictive views, and then three other ones, which are esteeming unworthy objects, jealousy, and miserliness. So you could see the difference just in translating those nine between two different translators, okay? But... We didn't get into those nine last time. We just mentioned them by the by the side. Last time we were talking about the five lower fetters and the five higher fetters, and they are actually the same in the abhidharma um, and in the Pali tradition, okay? So we had the the five lower fetters um. Okay, view of a personal identity, diluted doubt, uh, view of rule, rules and practices, sensual desire, malice, uh, sensual desire and malice. And those are the lower ones, the lower fetters. Okay, so the first three of those were eliminated by stream enterers. The second two, sensual desire and malice, were decreased by the once returners yeah they were abandoned those two by the non-returners and then the five higher fetters okay desire for existence in the form realm desire existence for the formless realm arrogance restlessness and ignorance those five were eliminated by the arhats Okay, so that was a, a big translation uh, thing, you know. What in Venerable Sange Kadro's text, yeah, the term that, that the Pali tradition that, and I was following, that uh, we, Samyajana, which we translated as fetters in her text, were called thorough entanglers which in the Pali tradition are called thorough entanglements, okay? And in another uh, uh, sutra, okay, um, so so what the text she was calling, was translating um, as, as thorough entanglements, okay? The text I was using uh, was a different, term, yeah, parivastanas, and they were translated as wrappings. No, no, they were trapped, no, in her text they were translated as wrappings. So in her text, samyojana, what I was calling fetters, she was calling thorough entanglements. The term that I I was using for thorough entanglements, parivastanas, in her text was translated as wrappings, as in a wrapping a gift, I guess. I don't know. Thorough entanglements gives you much more of a sticky feeling, doesn't it? Okay. So just to go through these, these, um, full entanglements. Yeah, there's eight of them. So here's just, you see these lists of, of, all these things that keep us stuck in samsara. And, you know, different lists emphasize different qualities, but the same mental factors keep appearing. Okay? So in the full entanglements, according to my translation, or the translation I was following, uh, I was using uh, David Pat's uh, dissertation based on the first Dalai Lama's um, book on Abhidharma Abhidharmakosha. So uh, th- the full entanglements. Two of them are inconsistent with ethical conduct. Okay. Guess guess what they are. Two of them are, that really impede us from ke- keeping good ethical conduct.
0: Hmm? Hmm.
1: What? No. No. Oh, huh? That's it. Okay. Lack of integrity and inconsideration of others. So, those are two big ones that are inconsistent with ethical conduct because when they arise in our mind, we have no wish to keep ethical conduct at all, okay? If we have integrity, then we abandon negative actions out of a sense of self-respect for ourselves and for the uh, tradition we practice. With consideration for others, we abandon negativity so that we don't destroy other people's faith and confidence either in ourself or in the Buddha Dharma. Okay, so those are quite important. Then there's uh, two that are inconsistent with benefiting others. And so you're going to say all of them, and you're right. But here, two specific ones, jealousy and miserliness. Can you see how they really interfere with benefiting others? If we're jealous, no way can we benefit. If we're miserly, similarly, you know. Then there are two inconsistent with wisdom. These are restlessness and regret. Okay. Now that's interesting because you would think maybe it would be some of the views. But restlessness is a, a form of attachment where the mind keeps getting distracted to objects of attachment. And uh, regret or remorse here is not the virtuous kind of regret that helps us to purify negativities, but the kind of regret where you feel kind of guilty and like, I should have done that, and I should not have done this. Okay. Okay. So that kind of regret is is to be abandoned. Okay, and then there's two that are inconsistent with meditative staple, uh, stability. Guess what those are? I can't believe! Look what I'm doing!
0: <laughs> what?
1: Okay, yeah, sleep and torpor, lethargy lethargy and you know drowsiness. Okay, when you go like this, what are you doing, you know? Okay, I peek in through the windows sometimes, you know. Some of you are like <laughs> some of you are you even make my eye contact with me. <laughs> I won't say who. Okay, and then the vibasakas add two more to make ten full entanglements. And those are wrath, okay, and concealment. Not wanting to admit transgressions and negative uh, qualities when somebody talks to us out of care and wants to help us. And we go into this thing of, you know, no, I didn't do that. It's really a gum-hoo-hoo. And, uh, you know, it's mentioned very much in in, uh, our fortnightly confessions for precepts, concealment. Okay, then the second question that was left over from last week was about uh, if you're born in the form and formless realms, can you still, uh, you know, can you create karma to be born in the form and formless realms? Because somebody was saying, if you can, then, you know, why would you ever have to fall from that? Okay? So, uh, what it is, is when you're born in, let's say, the form realm, due to attaining certain levels of meditative stability when you were a human being, if you aspire, when you're born in the form realm, to have a rebirth in the formless realm, then you can practice meditative stability very diligently and in your mind actualize the mind of one of the states of the form, formless realm or even the mind of a higher state in the form realm such that in your next life you are born in that realm. Okay, so there's this interesting thing whereby you can be born in one realm. Let's say you're born in the desire realm, like human beings are. Okay, if you meditate and attain deep states of samadhi, yeah, you are still a desire realm being, but your mind is has the sphere of the form realm. Let's say if you have Develop the, that level of concentration comparable to birth in the form realm. Okay, so it, it's interesting how you can be about a person of one realm and have the mind of a superior realm. So, and then that causes you to be born there. Yeah, if if you want to use it like that, if you want to use it gaining realizations on the path, then you can, and that's how, that should be our purpose for generating uh, serenity or shamatha, and the dhyanas uh, is to use them to meditate on the path, not just to get born in those kind of realms. Okay, so those that...
0: Yeah. Because I I wrote to Bhikkhu Bodhi and asked him the question, and he sent me a reference Mm. from his book, Comprehensive Manual of Abhidharma. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, in there it says, uh, when one passes away from an immaterial realm, i.e. formless realm, Mm -hmm. one may be reborn in superior formless realms, but not in lower ones, and... Yeah, the explanation actually says um, beings in the formless realm may develop the formless jhana that corresponds to their level of rebirth or the higher jhanas, but not lower. So you can't, once you're in the formless realm, you can create the cause to be born again in the formless realm in the same level or a higher level, mm-hmm. but not you won't go to a lower one. Mm-hmm. Um, but when you pass away, yeah, so you could either go to a the same or the higher, but not a lower jhana. Yeah. But if your, what do you call it, your jhana uh, degenerates, then you would be born in the desire realm.
1: Yeah. Or if the karma for that uh, to be born in the former formless realm ends and you haven't, you know, perpetuated that deep state of samadhi then you would again be reborn in the in the desire realm, because they they say that all of us, believe it or not, have attained the form and formless realms before, and we've been in those states, and then that karma ends, and we haven't been, you know, practicing to maintain to maintain it. Don't ask me to explain more about the form and formless realms. Develop the ability to see your own previous lives, and then you can answer the question and tell me the answer, okay? Because I don't know it. (laughs) Okay, so now we are, we talked about the pollutants last session. Now we're talking about the hindrances, okay? And we'll just do these very briefly, because they come up um, with much more explanation in the context of generating serenity or calm-abiding, shamatha, however you want to call it. And that gets explained in the next volume. Okay, So if we read from the bottom of page 99... Another group of obscurations explained in both the Pali and Sanskrit traditions are the five hindrances. Okay, what's interesting is uh, these five hindrances get listed in the Bodhisattva uh, vow, in the auxiliary precepts about uh, the perfection of meditative stability. Yeah, not working to counter these five is a, uh, a transgression of one of the bodhisattva auxiliary precepts, okay? And I find that interesting because they use these five, which come in the Pali tradition, uh, and they don't use the five uh, faults that Maitreya explained that's from the Sanskrit tradition. So I just find that interesting. Anyway. Okay, so the five hindrances, some of our old friends and good buddies. Okay, what's the big good buddy that we have all the time? Sensual desire. Okay, and what's its best friend? Okay, malice, anger. Okay, wanting to harm. So either wanting to grasp or (laughs) wanting to get away. Okay, the third one is lethargy and sleepiness. They're also our friend. Yeah, very familiar with them. The fourth one is restlessness and uh, remorse. Again, very familiar with those. And the fifth one is diluted doubt, one of our old friends. Okay? So all of these have come before in different lists, haven't they? You know? But here they're singled out as specific things that interfere with developing concentration when we're meditating. Okay? So they they are called hindrances— because they impede attaining the form and formless realm absorptions. These five are non-virtuous and are found only in the desire, in desire realm beings. Okay. Because these five have to be suppressed in order to attain the form realm, dhyanas. Yeah. So once you're in the form realm, dhyanas are higher. Those five are still uh, suppressed. Yeah. So wouldn't it be nice? You, d- you don't have sensual uh, desire. You don't have malice. You're not falling asleep in meditation anymore. Okay. Okay. But these have not been eliminated in the form and formless realm absorptions, only temporarily suppressed. Okay. Why haven't they been eliminated? because we haven't realized emptiness. So we don't have the antidote to all of samsara. Okay, so uh, the, the five hindrances have been briefly discussed above in other classifications of defilements and will be explained in more depth when the method to gain serenity is presented in the next volume, which is entitled... Following in the footsteps of the Buddha. Okay. So in the above classifications of defilements, some defilements are found in multiple categories. Others are present only once. Various forms of attachment, anger, and ignorance appear repeatedly, sometimes given different names or slightly different definitions. But you can see how they definitely fall under the big umbrella of either ignorance, anger, and attachment. However, uh, they still point to the three strong tendencies of our minds that it behooves us to pay attention to. When studying the defilements and observing how they function in our minds and uh, the influence, influence they have on our lives, it is important to remember that they are not embedded in the nature of our minds. So there's two things here. We have to really think deeply about these kind of defilements and how they function and recognize them in our mind and see how they sabotage all of our spiritual aspirations. So we have to really come to grips with that. And at the same time, realize that they are not the nature of our mind and can be eliminated. Okay, when we see things that uh, you know are very deeply rooted in our mind and have kept us in samsara since beginningless time, our afflictive mind tends to go to the extreme of it's impossible to eliminate these. They are part of the nature of my mind. That is a wrong assumption. They are not the nature of our mind, okay? So those are the things uh, together with true dukkha that we are renouncing. So when Buddhism talks about renunciation, it's not talking about giving up chocolate. It's talking about giving up these mental states and their results in our different samsaric lifetimes. Okay, so, various forms of attachment, anger, and ignorance. Are, uh, let's see. Oh, Sorry, I read that already. Um, so, it's important to remember that these are not embedded in the nature of our minds. Just as clouds in the sky obscure the clear nature of the sky, but are not part of it. Defilements obscure the clear nature of the mind, but are not embedded in that pure nature. Okay, so the same way in fire season, smoke comes and fills the sky, but the smoke is not the nature of the sky, and it can be eliminated. Okay, it comes back next year, but the thing is with these afflictions, If we eliminate them from the root, then they can't come back at all. Okay. Like clouds, defilements can be removed. But unlike clouds, which can always reappear, when defilements are thoroughly cleansed from the mind, they can never return, and the pure sky-like nature of the mind radiates forever unobscured. Wouldn't that be nice? Okay, so that's the end of chapter three. We go on to chapter four, which is called Afflictions, Their Arising, and Their Antidotes. So as we've seen, when we delve into the categories and definitions of defilements, according to various Buddhist traditions and tenant schools, the discussion becomes lengthy and complex. Okay? Uh, if you, in case you haven't noticed. <laughs> on the other hand, when we focus on the questions, what motivates me to act in ways that harm myself and others? What keeps me and others bound in cyclic existence? Okay. When we explore those questions, the answer is succinct. Afflictions rooted in ignorance. Okay. Of course, when you look at the word, uh, the phrase affliction rooted in ignorance, then you get all these different divisions and different kinds of things, and it all branches out. Okay. So in this chapter, we will learn more about how the afflictions operate. So this is very helpful, you know, because what the Buddha is giving us here is a psychological map for understanding the different kinds of thoughts and feelings and attitudes and views that uh, are in our mind, you know, and to identify them and to see which ones cause happiness and joy and which ones cause pain and suffering. And then we can learn how to counteract the latter group and increase and enhance the former group. Okay, so the first uh, subtitle here is 84,000 Afflictions. So rejoice, it's not 84,002. Okay, it could be worse. There's only 84,000. So we may wonder why certain disturbing emotions such as fear, anxiety, frustration, insecurity, and depression, as well as different uh, wrong views, different confused attitudes, why these are not mentioned uh, specifically in the classifications of defilements that we just covered, uh, although they disturb our minds and interfere with Dharma practice. Okay, why aren't they mentioned? Okay, it could be that because of the structure of contemporary society and world events, uh, these afflictions have become more pronounced. Yeah, however, they did not go unnoticed by the Buddha who spoke of 84,000 afflictions. So the groups in the previous chapter contain the most prominent afflictions that keep us revolving in cyclic existence. These other afflictions are among the 84,000 and are subtypes of the prominent ones. Okay. And when you, this is what is what makes it quite interesting when we look at some of the ones here, like fear, anxiety, worry, depression, and look in our own minds and see okay, you know, identify these in our own minds and then ask ourselves, okay, then which of the root afflictions are they related to? Which of the fetters? Which of the hindrances? And, you know, see what other factors play into the arising of these ones. And what what's so interesting is you see that, you know, there's different combinations of uh, mental factors, you know. One may arise and it gives rise to another one, which gives rise to another one and then, you know. So you don't, let's say, like start out with anxiety, you know. You start out with uh, the wrong conception that uh, impermanent things are permanent. And then maybe you go to attachment, and then you go to anger, and then after that, you get to go to anxiety. Okay. So there may be different ways that some of these other ones arise and uh, afflict our minds. Okay. What I find interesting, you know, is His Holiness, uh, you know, sometimes people in like the Mind and Life conferences would say, well, you know, shouldn't we add all these other ones to, to the list of uh, that's found in Lowrig, which is 52, I think, 51 or 52? And shouldn't we add those in? And, uh, you know, an outcome they're missing and, and things like that. And His Holiness really emphasizes that human beings' minds are the same. It doesn't matter what society you're in what historical period you're in, the afflictions that arise in our minds are the same. What differs is what the objects are that can make the afflictions arise, and then the different things that are emphasized in a different culture or historical time uh, that depend on the the uh, you know the qualities of that culture or that historical time. And so when we get to something like anxiety, you know, um I think there's specific things in modern culture that stoke anxiety. Yeah. Would would you agree? You know, I think it it starts with our education system. Yeah, when you go to school and you get ranked, from kindergarten, kindergarten, preschool, preschool, yeah, you get ranked, you know, it can, you color yellow within the the lines, if you do, you get a good grade, you know, I mean, who cares, little kids, but they're so anxiety producing, because you're always being evaluated, and judged, and compared to other people, and given a score, and your parents are looking, there's a whole education system that goes on for 20-something years based on this? Yeah? I mean, do, do you think in like ancient Egypt they they had this kind of educational system, and, and you were you know, from the time you were bi- this big, getting judged and evaluated and, and given report cards to take home to your parents. And in ancient Egypt, were they worried about you getting into a, a good university and getting a good job and making a lot of money? And, you know, yeah. I mean, parents, I'm sure in the, in those times, they wanted their children to do well and to have comfortable lives but there wasn't the same societal pressure that kids face now okay and so you're a kid and you you grow up in this society where there's all this pressure and constant judgment yeah and constant parental worry yeah and you grow up to be an adult who yeah worries is stressed and anxious Because that's what you've been taught to be your whole life. You don't grow up to be a relaxed person. Yeah? You have to learn how to be relaxed. You have to learn how to, you know, decompress. You have to learn how to accept yourself and be satisfied with who you are. Hmm? Okay, so the, the afflictions are all the same, but you know certain ones are brought out in certain cultures because of the structure of uh, the and values of those cultures. Okay, you know, just like uh, what's quite interesting in Tibetan educational system. Yeah, you are considered very intelligent. If you can memorize a lot. So memorization gets you, you know, the gold stars across the board. They don't give gold stars, but, you know, the equivalent of prestige and praise and, you know, you're considered very bright and everything. If you can memorize a lot, okay? In our school system, that ability to memorize a lot is, you know, it's not valued so much. Yeah, we're supposed to be taught to think. Whether we are taught to think or not is another issue. But, you know, uh, that ability to, yeah, I mean, in the Tibetan monasteries, they'll say so and so can memorize so many folios in one day. Yeah, and everybody goes, wow. Yeah. Yeah. Now, does, does that In our education system, does anybody announce that? Yeah? (laughs) Yeah, how many pages you memorize? No, it's not a big deal. We need to know where to find the information if we want it. Okay. But they need to memorize the text. And then when they need that information, they kind of start reciting the text, until they come to the part that has the answer that they're trying to remember. It's quite interesting to watch. Okay, so so you can see, you know, the, the mental states are the same, but what we have depends a lot on the culture and historical time. Okay, all of them keep us circling in samsara. For example fear insecurity and anxiety okay of the the three poisonous attitudes which ones do you think fear insecurity and anxiety are are most under attachment, attachment aren't they yeah when we have strong attachment then we fear being separated from the object of attachment. When we have strong attachment, we're very anxious about our reputation, because we're attached to our reputation. We're attached to whether people praise us or blame us, what what they think about us. And that is very anxiety-producing, isn't it? You know, what do we get anxious about, you know? Will I have, you know, the same reputation as so and so? Will I get a raise? Will I have this kind of car? What will people think of? And so much anxiety about that, you know? And what will, and then insecurity is what happens if I lose the things that I'm attached to and I don't have them anymore? Then I feel like the, bottom fell out of my life, and I have nothing to stand on, and I'm totally insecure. Yeah? Because so much of our identity and, you know, and our feeling of security depends, for example, on our health. Okay? When we're attached to the body, and when the body doesn't function properly, then Yeah? Anxiety, fear. Yeah? When the economy goes down and we're threatened with losing whatever it is we're attached to, anxiety, fear. When we're concerned about what other people think of us, if we'll have the promotion, if once we get the promotion we can really fulfill those responsibilities, or not, or if we're going to fail, we, are we going to get into graduate school, or aren't we, are we going to get, you know, into trade school, or aren't we? Yeah, anxiety, fear, you know, insecurity, based on the, the overemphasis of the value of these things in our life. Yeah? And then the fear and the anxiety and the insecurity become a hindrance to actually get what we want because instead of being able to create the cause for whatever it is we want, our mind just spins around, you know, feeling anxious and insecure and worrying and fretting. And there's no time to do whatever it is we need to do. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, this is this is samsara. Yeah. This is samsara. For example, fear, insecurity, and anxiety are related to attachment, but not only attachment. Based on distorted conceptions. Remember that there's four big distorted conceptions. Do you remember what they are? Thinking whatever is impermanent is permanent. Whatever is impure or foul is pure. Yeah, that which is the nature of being unsatisfactory is actually happiness. And that which lacks a self has a self. Okay? Those four are big ones. Yeah? Okay? So based on the distorted conceptions that see whatever is impermanent as permanent, and the other one, whatever is unsatisfactory in nature as happiness, we become attached to certain people or things. Is that true? Has that happened in your life? Yeah? Fear arises over the possibility of being separated from the people, situations, and things we are attached to. Anxiety and insecurity manifest when we consider unknown future events such as the possibility uh, of, the, we're missing the word of. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah, sorry. Such as possibly losing our, our job, our marriage dissolving, or receiving an unwanted medical diagnosis. Okay? Although these events have not yet happened and do not exist at this moment, and may never happen, okay, distorted conceptions and afflictions run rampant in our minds, making us miserable. Isn't that when you think of that? These things are not happening now. They may never, ever happen but we are completely miserable now feeling fear, insecurity, and anxiety because they may happen. Even though they're not happening now and we're completely feeling, you know, in a, in a safe situation right now. Isn't that amazing how our mind works? Yeah? Yeah. So, you know, when when the Buddha says that, uh, when Lama Yeshe said, you're already hallucinating, dear, this is the kind of, you know, why why he said you don't need to go take drugs, you know, if you're practicing the Dharma. We are hallucinating. Our afflictions just, you know, they're, I mean, they're, they're crazy, aren't they? When you think about it. And yet... When we're in the middle of an afflicted state, if somebody says, this is not happening now, calm down, oh, we get so upset. Yeah? We get so upset because we're certain that this is definitely something that we need to worry about, and that somehow worry and anxiety will prevent it from happening. When worry and anxiety actually make it happen, because they impede with our ability to do something else that is virtuous and constructive. Okay. It's, it's sad. It's sad. I mean, how much we suffer. and This is just mental suffering, not even talking about the physical suffering. Another type of anxiety is related to doubt, but unlike the doubt that is a root affliction, This doubt does not contemplate issues important to spiritual practice. At least the doubt, you know, diluted doubt, is you're thinking about spiritual things. You know, there's another kind of doubt where we agonize over making decisions, wishing we could follow all the options simultaneously before choosing the best one. Yeah. Yeah. Or it, or following each one sequentially, and then going, taking the time, time machine back into the past, and then choosing the best one after we've tried all of them. Okay, yeah. Did you ever been in that kind of state of doubt? You cannot make a decision. Yeah. And you know, it's not over like. You know, are things inherently existent or not? It's, uh, you know, should I go on vacation to Yellowstone or to uh, the Bahamas? You know, should I take this job or that job? <laughs> oh, you know? Okay, plagued by doubt, we avoid making a decision and spin with anxiety. This, too, is related to attachment. Our world has become narrowly focused on our own happiness and what benefits ourselves and the people that we cherish. Our problem is that we don't know what will bring us the most happiness. Yeah. So the mind is very much like this. Yeah. What is going to bring me the most happiness? Yeah. Should I get chocolate chip cookies or ginger snaps? You know, I'm asking my friends over for, you know, a holiday. What do I serve them? You know, what gift do I give somebody? Yeah, boy. I mean, we go crazy, and it's all about us, isn't it? So, self-centered mind is very involved with all of these. Yeah, we don't we don't worry about other people's problems. Yeah, I read yesterday about uh, one uh, kid who was here uh, on DACA, you know. He came as a child, uh, as an immigrant, you know, was not documented. Obama had this program and started DACA. And they have to apply every two years to renew uh, their status so that they can work. And they're so far behind in the process of renewing that... One guy, you know, some people's, uh, you know, status as DACA didn't get renewed, and then they lose their job. Now, did any of you worry about those people? You know, how many of us worried about those kids? And then today, some judge in Texas said that Obama went beyond his uh, authority in establishing DACA. He didn't say that, he didn't put an injunction and say, it should be dismantled right now, but he definitely put it in jeopardy. How many of us worry about, you know, all those kids? Maybe two hundred. Well, there used to they used to say like eight hundred thousand of them. Yeah, who've been? They're basically, you know, brought up as Americans. It's the only country they live, and they could be threatened with deportation. Yeah, we don't get anxious about them. What's going to happen to them? Yeah, self-centered mind. Gets anxious about, you know, I just got a pair of shoes, but I don't know if they're really going to fit in with what else I'm wearing and what my friends will think of them. Okay, it's it's a yeah. Anyway, I keep saying this. It's amazing how our mind thinks. Okay, so depression that is not based on chemical activity in the brain or traumatic brain injury seems to be related to attachment. So the depression that's related to chemical activity in the brain, maybe you need to take lithium or or something, um, or I don't know, one of the medications for that, or... Uh, traumatic brain injury or something like that, where there's a physical basis for the depression. That That's one kind of depression. But there's another kind that seems to be very related to attachment. We want events to happen in ways that accord with our expectations and dreams and that fulfill our needs. And we become despondent when... Things don't happen the way we want, and we can't get what we want. So that can lead to anger at ourselves and self-recrimination, and both of those can contribute to depression. But if you have a thing with depression, it's good to look and see, you know, what kind of thoughts are there that that feed the, the feeling of depression and what exactly is depression like how do you know when you're depressed and how would you define it and how, yeah and how do you, how do you recognize it in yourself quite interesting when you ask those questions yeah cuz we say the word depression and it's like oh yeah i know what that is but when you really investigate it yeah what is it really So Emotions such as depression, rage, and anxiety that manifest as hypervigilance may have multiple contributing factors, physical, sexual, or emotional abuse, abuse combat trauma, poverty, prejudice, and depression, and irregularities in brain chemistry or traumatic brain in- injury, to name a few. So healing may require a multi-pronged approach. Within this, the Buddhist approach of analyzing the thoughts, mental habits, and so forth that lie behind disturbing emotions can be very helpful. If we attribute our problems only to external factors, healing can be difficult because we cannot undo past experiences. Okay? So, if we think our problems are all caused by external things that we cannot undo because they're in the past, or events that we cannot control, yeah, then we're kind of giving up on our own ability to manage our moods and to change what... You know, what we're thinking and feeling. And that's really the key to, I think, psychological health as well as spiritual progress. Okay, so the healing can be difficult because we cannot undo past experiences. They happened and are over. Our present problems stem from unbeneficial ways of interpreting and responding to past events and present memories of them. Okay, so that's interesting, isn't it? You know, we're responding to our memories of things in the past and our responding to things in the past are creating the attitudes and views and emotions that we have now and the filter through which we judge the world and of the four distorted conceptions which ones uh, you know are activated most in our own minds okay By understanding the mistaken way in which disturbing emotions function and learning more realistic and beneficial ways of regarding situations, we can subdue these disturbing emotions and prevent the damaging behavior that they can provoke. Okay, So the the rise in interest among scientists and uh, neurobiologists and so on a lot of it focuses on this, you know, what is going on in the brain, and how does that uh, correlate with a person's uh, cognitive experience? How, how does that function with their with the experiential side? Because they're used to uh, investigating all the chemical, physical, biological processes, which have to do with atoms and molecules and material substances. And Buddhism is talking about, you know, experience, consciousness, what's going on in the mind. And so there's a lot of interest now among many of these scientists and evolutionary biology and all these things and anthropological... Is it biology, or uh, anyway, all these kind of merging fields between uh, the sciences, uh, the sciences and the liberal arts, you know? And uh, yeah, it's really nice. And a lot of this has started um, because of the Mind and Life Institute uh, that started off many many years ago with. Uh, just small discussions of a few scientists with His Holiness, and now has grown to this holy, you know, this enormous kind of organization involved in a lot of different activities. Okay. When hearing our emotions analyzed in the above manner, we may feel peaked. Picked or peaked? Peaked. Yeah, thinking that the seriousness of our emotions is not being respected. <laughs> yeah, you and I know what's going on with this one, huh? As individuals, we are very attached to what we term my emotions. Based on adhering to them as mine, we consider our emotions to be extremely serious so much so that if we feel that we feel hurt or even angry if others aren't as concerned with our emotions as we are <laughs> true or not true How many arguments occur in marriages because of this topic? Yeah. I want you just to understand and listen to what I'm feeling and respect what I'm feeling. Don't try and cure me. Don't give me advice. Yeah. Or are you criticizing my feelings? My feelings? Any sane person in this universe would react to this situation in this way. Why are you making fun of my feelings? Right? How oh, we get very upset about this. Yeah. So while our emotions are important, it may not be for the reason we think. (laughs)
2: Because
1: we think our emotions are important because they're mine. You know, and everybody should be concerned with what happens to me. You know, because it's me. Yeah. But these motivations motivate our spiritual, verbal, and mental actions that not only affect us spiritually, but also influence others around us. That's one way in which our emotions are important, in that they make us act and influence the people that we share the environment with. Our actions also influence our future lives. Yeah, because of karma. Our actions also influence our ability to uh, realize emptiness and generate bodhicitta. And these emotions are at the root of those actions. Okay, so the emotions are important because of the effect they have on ourselves and others. But we think they're important because they are my feelings. Yeah. I told you my parents called me Sarah Bernhardt when I was a kid. Because apparently I was so dramatic with my feelings. Not like being so equanimous and good-natured now, huh? Mm. Okay. Uh, Our actions also influence our future lives. For these reasons, learning how to manage them effectively is important. Some people are attached to predictability. Who's attached to predictability? Uh, You're not? Oh, okay. You're you're not attached to predictability? No? No? Really? Mm, can I point it out next time you are? Okay. <laughs> okay, so some people are attached to predictability, even though samsara is unpredictable, in that previously created karma is continuously ripening. Okay, how do we deal with unpredictability? We want to control. Okay? So we make lists. We make categories. We make rotas. And then we make more rotas and more lists and more categories. And we tell people what to do. And we remind them ten times. Yeah. Shall we buy more light? Oh, yes, how we get more whiteboards where we can list out everything that needs to be done. And we develop schedules, yeah? And then we, we list who takes what car at what time on one date, what date. And we want everything organized, you know? We can't stand things that are not Organized. Yeah. And people write me emails asking me the upcoming retreat. The retreat is like two weeks away. (laughs) Yeah, that's a long time. (laughs) what are you teaching, what do you need, what's the the schedule, of this and that, and who do you need for what, and blah, 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 and do, 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 and it drives people crazy when I can't answer their questions because I haven't had even time to think about it because I'm too anxious about all my emails and getting them answered. (laughs) Okay. Okay. So some people are attached to predictability even though samsara is unpredictable and the previously created karma is continuously ripening. They wish to control other people and situations and become frustrated when they cannot, okay? However, we cannot make others do what we think is best, okay? Nor can we control the aging of our bodies or make the body immune to illness or injury, okay? But we want predictability, so we want control, so we nag, don't we, yeah. But the polite word for nag is a gentle reminder. (laughs) (laughs) And you just give many of those, and then, you know, you ask Siri and Cortina, Cortana, you ask them to give you gentle reminders, also, so that your life is organized, you know, and on your email kind of goes with your calendar, goes with your, uh, what is it? Your, your various, uh, WhatsApp and line and what other ones they have, you know, and they're all coordinated. So you can make an appointment when you're reading an email. Nobody reads emails except me. Um <laughs> yeah, but you write them. Um, <laughs> and And then, you know, we, we want organization and the schedule and the, you know, the bells on your computer to ring when you have something coming up. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. we don't tend to set our our uh our reminders for lunch. That one we remember. (laughs) Okay. Our wish to control and the belief that we should be able to is associated with the view of a personal identity, especially the form that grasps at a self-sufficient, substantially-existent person. Tsongkhapa uses the analogy of a master and a servant To illustrate this grasping, so the self is like a master who controls and gives orders, and the body and mind are like servants, and they should obey. Yeah? Do your body and mind listen to you? No. However, such a self-sufficient, substantially existent person does not exist, which is probably why we don't listen to its instructions. (laughs) So thinking that we should be able to control everything around us is definitely unrealistic. Yeah, I mean, can you imagine this morning if we had not known that there was going to be a fire drill? I mean, supposedly we didn't know, but it got leaked.
0: (laughs) <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. I don't know who. Somebody in in the FBI leaked it that we were having a fire drill. And but can you imagine? You're in the middle of something, and then at that sick moose,
0: <laughs> you know. <laughs>
1: And then you have to stop what you're doing, and oh no, there's a fire, and you want to grab everything and pack your bag, but it was three short blows. But yeah, yeah, three short, not this kind of blow, but this kind of blow, blast, three, yeah, three, three short blasts, and you gotta get to the car immediately, but you had your whole morning planned out. Yeah. Okay. When we look from a global perspective, it is evident that all these defilements are, in one way or another, dependent on the obscuring and misleading force of ignorance and view of a personal identity. These are the root of samsara. Seeing their disadvantages, we become determined to cultivate the wisdom that will eradicate them. Knowing that all ordinary beings suffer from them, our hearts open in compassion for ourselves and others. Yeah? If we feel anxiety, imagine the anxiety felt by the people that are perpetuating the big lie. You know, like, what happens if people stop believing our our lie? Well, we'll just keep on lying and make it bigger and and so on. Anyway, they think it's the truth. We have them fooled. Yeah. Yeah. Incredible way to to control. You know, when you want security and predictability and you can't get what you want, what do you do? You lie. Yeah. You lie, and you instill fear, and you become aggressive, and people suffer. Okay, so the reflections. This is your homework. When afflictions uh, that are not specifically named in the previous chapter arise in your mind, name them and observe how they function. See which of the root afflictions they are most closely related to. Okay, That was the first point. Second point, identify the distorted conceptions that lie behind that emotion. Third, observe the other afflictions that arise either before or after it. Four, question whether these afflictive emotions serve to promote your own and others' well-being. Think of which Dharma teachings you could contemplate that would help counteract these afflictive emotions or attitudes or views. Okay. Questions, comments? Avoidance
3: is also a reaction to being worried about not being able to predict things, right? Like, I don't, if I don't go to this meeting or I don't show up because I can't predict it, avoiding things so you don't have to deal with unpredicted situations. Mm.
1: Say that again. You're saying um, that avoiding produces anxiety
3: well, I was as saying, well. Yeah, like uh, one reaction to not being able to predict things is control, you know, creating a really tight schedule. Uh-huh. I think another, the one that, I have to work on is avoidance. Like, uh, this thing's going to go badly. So I just won't go to it, you know, or Uh, that's also a thing, right? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. yeah. So another way which we react to anxiety besides trying to control is you're saying is just to avoid the situation. Yeah. Yeah. That's a, a good one, isn't it? You know, Thinking about doing this makes me anxious. So I just, uh, I forgot. Or I'm busy. That's the big one. I'm busy. I'm busy. I can't do it. You under- huh? <laughs> like, um, Canceling. Canceling plans, yeah Canceling yes.
3: plans, because you don't have to deal with something. You yeah. Know, some people, I don't personally do this, but I definitely know people who, like, have a lot of satisfaction from canceling plans, because then you don't have to deal with unpredictable situations, you know?
1: Yeah. We, cha- we make plans. We change plans.
0: Yeah. Why isn't self-centeredness considered an affliction? I mean, it seems very, you know, it's rooted, or the afflictions are rooted in self-centeredness as well as ignorance.
1: Yeah. Um, Because self-centeredness is pointed out specifically in the Bodhisattva path where it comes to mean looking, uh, seeking your own liberation. Okay. So that's what uh, I think was the original meaning of self-centeredness. You're seeking your own liberation. In when you just talk about the afflictions, then they talk about attachment to self. Okay, in the thing of afflictions. But very but there's an aside from the that subtle self-centeredness that seeks our own liberation, there's the gross self-centeredness that is. I think that based on attachment to self, that nourishes all the other afflictions, yeah.
0: So anxiety involves imagining future situations often. So if you are imagining something could happen, there is a possibility something could happen, sure. like, and it causes anxiety, how do you um, still go ahead with planning for it, with? But removing the anxiety.
1: Okay, a couple of things that I found helpful is um, to think if the things that I'm anxious about happen, uh, I have resources to deal with them. There are resources in the environment, other people can come to help, different, you know, there's lots of help in the universe that can help if difficult situations arise, so that external help. And then also I do have the dharma and I have the ability to apply the antidotes that the Buddha taught in order to keep my mind happy. Okay. And then furthermore, how likely is it is it that the thing that I am anxious about is really going to happen? Yeah. How, uh, yeah, how likely is that? And I know when we're in the midst of anxiety, it is extremely likely that, you know, that plane that is flying across the country is going to lose power and crash on top of our house. You know, nobody else's house on, on as is flying across. And, you know, it really could happen today. How likely is that? Oh, it's very likely. It happens all the time. Didn't you read about it? Yeah, this plane crashed on somebody's house. How many houses are there in America? (laughs) What's the percentage? What's the the rate of likelihood that it's going to crash on the place where I live? Okay, but that condo building fell down. You know, it fell down. And my, the building I live, you know, uh, that building over there, uh, Nanda Hall, could fall down just poof in 17 seconds. Yeah, it could. And it could fall down. It really could. How likely is that? I don't think so likely. Yeah. And if it starts to fall, the cats will warn us. (laughs) (laughs) And they'll lead us out. (laughs) Okay. So I find that, that just, you know kind of reasoning with my own mind is very helpful. Mm-hmm. And then there's other things like, okay, you're planning something. Um, yeah, we're, we're going to, I don't know, have some kind of program and invite people here. Well, you know, I'm in charge of organizing it. What happens if I blow it? Yeah. Then I say, I do my best, you know, if I blow it, I blow it. Well, then what will other people think of me? They'll think I'm an idiot. Well, actually, that's probably good for me if people think I'm an idiot, because it it decreases my arrogance, and anything that can help me be less arrogant is good for my practice. Okay? So I'll try and do it well, but for sure I'm going to miss some things, for sure. But if those are the things people pick out and they criticize me for, if it's true, then I just say, yeah, I did that. And if they think less of me because of it, then I say, that's good. Why does everybody have to think I'm wonderful? I know that is the first rule of the universe. Everybody has to think I'm wonderful. And if people do not live by that rule of the universe, it is a horrible transgression. Yeah? And the problem is that most of the time people don't live by that. And they don't think that I'm wonderful. Can you imagine that? How can somebody not think I'm wonderful? And how could they not think that everything I want should happen and the way I want it to be should be the way it should be? That's what we think, isn't it? Yeah? And then nothing turns out the way we expected it to. (laughs) And it always happens again and again and again. You know? As soon as you have a plan, you know what will not happen. So yeah, we kind of learn to relax a little bit in it, and sometimes we don't do so well relaxing. We're quite anxious, but then you know that becomes part of our practice to de- decrease our anxiety. With regards to attachment, how do we? How about a very sick family member that we fear to lose? Yeah, that's painful, isn't it? Yeah. But the pain comes uh, to a good extent because in, in our mind, people are not supposed to get sick and die. They're not supposed to be impermanent. They're supposed to be always alive and always there for us. And reality does not cooperate with our rule about how things should be. So we get upset.
2: Uh, I I was very impressed by a safe student of mine, class six, and um, he really makes a big effort in every moment of his life, going to work or experiences with his friends and living conditions and such to remind himself or to be aware of, you know, such as interdependence and emptiness um, from different perspectives, different aspects of grasping, um, such as when he gets criticized, and he really stops and really tries to apply um, the analytic meditation on, you know, what's really going on, what do I grasp here at, and what to expect, and um, he does that repeatedly now since quite a long time, such as a year, relatively long time for him, and um, this regularity in thinking like that really um, makes it so that he has more and more like a spontaneous um, response that is within the Dharma.
1: Yeah, Yeah, that happens when you practice. (laughs) It doesn't happen when you don't practice. Yeah. Okay, let's dedicate.
0: Okay.